Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. And for me to like really think about plateauing right now isn't even on my mind or like in my mental space. I have not even in like the part of the dream, you know, that matters yet. Like I'm still just falling asleep. Like I really want to have this conversation when people say you made it. When I'm firmly in the NBA on a stable contract, but like on a two-way, still like breaking my foot in the door. Ah, when I kick that motherfucker down, then you can say, oh, it's baby. Welcome to 94 and More, a podcast presented by Bristol Studio. I'm your host, Jake Fenster, a co-owner of the brand and head of marketing. Before you listen to this episode, I just want to give you a little bit of context. This is our first episode ever, and we are excited to be able to share it with you. However, it's been quite a journey to get to this point, and we had to record this episode in a couple different segments and at different times. With that being said, we are working on getting it right for all future episodes. In this episode, I'm joined by my friend Vic, who will share his unbelievable journey with you. He's such a great guy, and I'm so excited to be able to host the show with him going forward. Hope you enjoy. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Vic Law. Vic, welcome to the show. Hey, what's up? How you feeling? This is the first time uh, you're on your podcast. What's it like to have your own podcast? Man, it feels great. You know, I um, had always been interested in doing something like this and to finally be able to have this opportunity with Bristol and yourself it feels great. What what angle are you looking forward to bringing on this series? Man, you know, I think I have a really good insight into basketball, just haven't been around it my whole life and currently playing in the NBA with the Orlando Magic. I think some of our guests and even the questions I may get or ask, I think I'll have a really you know keen eye on kind of, you know, dissecting different topics and incorporating the basketball element into the show. I'm excited to to take on this series with you and and just speak to all kinds of people and, and see where this takes us. No, for sure. Can you just introduce yourself a little bit more to maybe some of the people who aren't familiar? My name is Vic Law. I'm from Chicago. Grew up on the south side of Chicago. Went to St. Rita High School. Played basketball and football before ultimately choosing basketball. Went to Northwestern University where I played for five years and was a part of the first ever NCAA tournament team at Northwestern. So, you know, big thing, big things over there. I went undrafted, picked up by the Orlando Magic, played summer league, and was ultimately cut and waived to the G League team. My time at Lakeland was monumental. The organization and the coaches really gave me a chance to blossom and show the Orlando Magic organization what they had always seen. You know, kind of being undrafted, I had always had that chip on my shoulder to show not only the Magic, but the entire NBA that I I belonged in the league. Right now, I'm currently on a two-way deal and continuing to climb my way up. So you're in the NBA at a very interesting time, and there are a lot of incredible social movements happening. And and the league is in an interesting position where it's both trying to support these movements on the ground while also not alienating fans by making basketball too political. Um, How in your experience have you been prepared to navigate this balance of expressing yourself while being respectful of other opinions or the league's stance? You know, a prime example of that Northwestern was when Kaepernick was kneeling. And, you know, we had gotten a message saying, like, you know, don't kneel. And I don't think, I don't know if I would have knelt anyway, but just kind of having that experience, like, you know, what if I did want to kneel? Or what if any player felt strongly enough to kneel? Would they have been punished for that? You know what I mean? And I think the school was so worried about having a negative attention brought to them. They were just really like, yeah, we don't want you kneeling. Let's just, you know, just stay strong if you have your beliefs and, you know, you can speak about that, but let's just not kneel. And, uh, I mean, I think that's a subtle way of doing it. 
Yeah, I think that that's a tricky thing to navigate for for you as a a college student. You know, you really, if you feel strongly about that, you know, it's tough to have an institution that brings you in that you have a trust with that kind of tells you, you know, how to respond to your emotions, right? So if you feel that strongly about kneeling, you should have the right to kneel. Because you're not doing, and especially like playing sports, right? Growing up, whenever you took a knee, it was for your coaches. It was when your coach was talking to you. It was never disrespectful in any way, right? Like a knee from my understanding was never out of disrespect to anybody. No, I mean, Kaepernick even spoke to the, like a high ranking official in the military and asked like, what should I do to show? And he said, kneel. As a college student, it's so tough when a university gets involved and tells you that, right? Because who are they to tell you how you peacefully protest and respond to something that you feel is is unjust? Well, I mean, you know, college athletes have a huge platform nowadays, too. So we have the same media training, even more so in uh, college, about having the right thing to say, being smart about your decisions, knowing that people are watching you. And so, you know, we had the media discussion about, yo, you know, we respect your feelings if you think you want to kneel, but we think we should stay against it, blah, blah. But it's, it's definitely a, a tricky road to navigate. Was that something that you you guys on the team discussed privately, separate from any staff members? Or was there mostly a conversation with like the higher ranking officials at the university? Some of our black teammates and I spoke about it. You know, the backlash some people were getting from the saying they wanted to kneel or like other pro athletes kneeling. Just talking about what our coaches said. And I don't think any of us were like, you know, so dead set on doing it. But just knowing that we had the agency, regardless of what was going to come next, that we could do it. You know, we would have been publicized had we did it. So just knowing we would have had that power to show solidarity with the cause and speak out against whatever we felt strongly enough to speak out against. Obviously didn't do it. I think we spoke to our coach about maybe having shirts like warm-ups to make a difference. Yeah, to make a statement. Yeah. I want to switch gears just a little bit. You went to Northwestern, which is a great school. Did you always recognize that education was as important as basketball? Oh, so my mom is like super crazy about uh, education. She, um, so when I was getting recruited in college, like I had to take an official to Harvard, had to go to Stanford. And both those schools are cool. Like I, I enjoyed my experiences at both schools. That she was just like, you need to understand as a young black male, you have to experience this. Like not a lot of young black men get to, to see Stanford's and Harvard's, you know, let alone go to college. And yet you're seeing the top of the top. So we need to go just so you can have the exposure and experience of seeing these schools. How did you ultimately land on Northwestern? Well, you know, I wanted to go pro. Like I'm, you know, went to high school in the inner city of Chicago. And, you know, I had a ton of teams. I had like seven or eight teammates go Division One, four go high Division One, And, you know, our whole thing, you know, I'm super competitive just as they are. And, you know, I, my whole goal out of high school was I want to be an NBA player. And so the schools I was looking at, I was looking at which one was going to help me become an NBA player. You know, my mom, you know, kind of evened me out, kind of so it was a 50-50, like, you need a program that's going to help you get to the next level while also going to a school that prepares you for life. So I think we found, like, a good medium in that Northwestern. You know, Coach Collins obviously has the experience of pros. He's worked with Olympic teams. And his dad is Doug Collins, who coached Michael Jordan. So I think, you know, his just experience and background kind of helped transition me into being a Wildcat. Was there any sort of additional pressure that you felt maybe other people put on you being from Chicago, going to a program that historically hadn't been very successful in basketball and to turn them around? Was there a pressure there? 
it was uh, my freshman year, like just going into Northwestern. You know, so many articles and everything were written about me being like the great hope of Northwestern. Like I was going to be the one that take them to the tournament, you know, all this stuff. And I thought that was cool, but, you know, I, I hadn't, oh, let me phrase that because like I said, I did, I, I wanted that responsibility of, of being the person or at least being one of the people to bring Northwestern a championship. But I knew it wouldn't just be me alone. Like I knew I, I couldn't just do it by myself. Like I knew I needed help, but the help of Brian McIntosh, Scott Lindsay, Gavin Skelly, Derek Parton, Jordan Ash, Aaron Fowler. Like I needed everybody. Don't forget Charlie Hall. Well, Charlie, yeah, Charlie too. Charlie did. That point he scored pushed us over the edge. My freshman year was so hard because it's always been like a mental thing. And for the longest time, I've always had like the physical tools. Like my body has always been ready to make that next jump. But my mental aggressiveness and awareness has always had to catch up athletically. And so I think my freshman year was such like a big wake up call that you're not just going to get past these guys on just physical skill. Like you can't just succeed alone on physical talent, like you have to have the right preparation, the right mental fortitude, the toughness, you know, everything that goes into being a good athlete and good basketball player, other than just having the, you know, the physical tools to do it. Where did you develop that? I mean, I just think, you know, over time at Northwestern, and, you know, talking to my dad, my sister, my mom, and just close ones, you know, it, it takes a community. And uh, I think, you know, having the right people around you and the right people who believe in you, because I think so much of anything is just the right situation. If you have the right people there that believe in you, that want to take the time, put their experience and, and their love and their trust in you, I think it makes a world of difference for a lot of players. If, if there's examples in the NBA, and I was saying like these players wouldn't be who they are, but like just think what what happens if Kobe goes to the Hornets? What happens if Kawhi stays in Indiana? You know what I'm saying? Like what happens if Jordan Bell doesn't go to the Warriors? You know, like there are, or what happens if Thompson is going to Warriors? Draymond, like there are so many countless examples of people finding a good situation for them and finding a home because of the situation, the people around them, like they just have the community that helps build them up. Yeah. So as you kind of just said, family and community are so important to one's success. And I imagine that the same goes for a team's success. How at Northwestern did you build that sense of community among your teammates? My class at least had a group chat where we talked and kind of introduced ourselves and, you know, spoke about what we wanted. And uh, even just coming into, you know, our first couple of weeks at Northwestern, just the open gyms and seeing the guys play, um, you knew there was talent there. Like, I knew that we could do something if we all, like, got better and, you know, kind of meshed well together. Um, I knew coming into Northwestern, we weren't just going to be, like, a Final Four team off the rip. Like, I knew, you know, the, the team had struggled and it was going to take time to finally, like, you know, break through and get good. But just watching through open gyms and practices, like, you could see the young talent we had. So it wasn't hard building trust in, like, my class. Like, the older guys, like, I was kind of skeptical with because, like, I'm just going to keep real. Like, I'm, I'm a very genuine and, like, competitive person. Like, if you're a perennial loser, it's going to be hard for me to listen to you because what do you know other than losing? So how did you navigate that? You know, I'm still, I'm, you know, I'm respectful. Like, you know, I'm, not, I'm never going to tell anybody to go uh, fuck off or anything. But I would always take, you know, it with like a little grain of salt, at least in my freshman season. I would take it with a grain of salt and just say, okay, you know, they're seniors. They're the guys, you know, who have been here. You know, they have the respect, whatever. So you just kind of listen, you know, you learn what you can. 
and you you know you keep moving. But you know I wasn't gonna get stuck on mistakes or them yelling or whatever because at the end of the day, like they probably didn't have like a good senior or whatever telling them like what was right and wrong. So how would they know how to truly lead? So I just think growing going up, especially going through Northwestern as a first year, my goal was really to get close with my class and, and understand like the players I would continue to play with through my career. Because as you build that chemistry, like, it's cool to be good. You know, you have to be cool with the seniors and develop that chemistry. But you have to, like, know the guys that you're going to be in, be there with the majority of the time. And once you get close with them, like, then it makes everything easier. And, I'm, and I, I usually like to, to get to know and develop a relationship with all my teammates. It wasn't hard for me to mesh well with the team. But, you know, just, like, from a competitive standpoint, when we would lose and, you know, the seniors would come together and try to, like – teach us through stuff, it's almost like, you know, it's hard for you to teach me when, you know, you were so wrong too. You know, I want to learn, but I want to learn the wrong things. Right. So once you got further along in your career there and those seniors who might not have known a lot about winning moved on, when did you feel it was your team and your time? Did you start to feel a shift? Well, I mean, I think going into our sophomore year, my class kind of knew more. We had to really take a huge step forward. It might not have been, quote-unquote, our team, but we knew that we had to be the ones to cultivate change along with the, the class in front of us to really get the reverse of moving forward. I mean, my sophomore year, I was hurt anyway, so I really had to just sit back and, like, learn and observe. Observe the way my teammates played, how they functioned, um, and what it took to be good. Because I think my sophomore year – we were close to being an NIT team, and we lost, like, a ton of close games. And one of the biggest things moving forward was just, like, we had to get a lot tougher. And tougher as in, like, mentally tough. Like, we couldn't be soft down the stretch. We had to know what we were doing at all times. There was shouldn't be a time where you're spaced out. You know, we just – I don't know. It was just a, a big thing for us. We had to get tougher. And just sitting out, like, you, you really get to have a new appreciation for things. And there's a different line of sight you get to the game. Once you have that realization that you need to get more mentally tough or the team needs to get more mentally tough, what do you notice from your experience that helped develop that for players or, or for a group of players? Well, I think because we were so close, it was easy because I think I think it's hard to just like make someone tough. You know, I think of course, almost to a certain extent, you're almost like you are tough or you aren't. But you can you can like foster some senses of tough. Like you can foster like a, a tougher mentality. And I think we had to, like, start holding each other much more accountable on a day-to-day basis. Like, it wasn't okay to let someone slip through the cracks or it wasn't okay to mess up continuously. Like, it really was on us to, like, force the change. And every day, you know, we were on each other, you know, harping little things, like, you know, yelling, you know, really being like, you know, because to a certain extent, like, you can't be friends on the court because at the end of the day, like, if we want to win, everyone has to, to want to win. And I think, you know, for a while, like, it was hard for us to find the happy medium of how to talk to each other without getting on each other's nerves and taking it personally. But once we found it, we, we you know, we would do, like, what it took to finally win and, and to get the most out of each other, I think, you know, the rest was history. Did developing this mental toughness prepare you for the NBA and the experience of draft night? Man, for sure. Like, I couldn't even, I can't even describe to you how mental the NBA is. At this level, everyone's good. Like, everyone is here for a reason. But there are a lot of things that separate that. Like, I think mental toughness and mental strength is such a huge piece of it. 
just being confident in who you are and knowing like yourself is so important because like NBA really can chew you up and spit you out. And so I think my time in North Western going through all the hardships, going through the tough times really prepared me to get to it, the NBA where it's so much more fast paced and you can't sit on one bad thing because it moves so fast. Like you're already on to the next game, the next experience, the next play, the next coach, the next teammate, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I can't even imagine how tough it was for you to not hear your name called on draft night. But the Orlando Magic called you afterwards and signed you to an Exhibit 10 contract, which is a G League contract for those who aren't familiar. The G League is the developmental league for the NBA, and an Exhibit 10 contract essentially means that you still have a long way to go before you've cemented your standing as an NBA player. Can you walk us through your experience arriving to training camp and what it was like transitioning to life as a G League player? Yeah, and I think even now like I'm still visualizing everything. And as we have time off, just thinking about the moments and what I need to do to continue to get better. But just training camp, man, really like having my first experience with new teammates and grown men who are in the NBA, playing against them and, you know, just seeing the speed of the game. But more than anything, like just in training camp, I didn't know anything and I didn't know what to expect from anyone. So going in there kind of blind and just kind of feeling like, Everything was going so fast. You know, the coach is just yelling. Or you do the play right, he's yelling. Or you do the play wrong, he's yelling. You just don't know, right? And so training camp kind of just like a blur. Like I felt like I was just going at 100 miles an hour the whole time and never really, like, stopped and went at my pace and just played my game. And when I got to the G League, which, which honestly was a blessing in disguise for me, having coaches like Stan Heath, Johnny Taylor, uh, Joe Barr, Mike Winecki, and then having management down there like Anthony Parker and Adetun J defense, I got to really come into my own because they allowed me to play and like kind of have my pace. Like the culture in Lakeland is one that is just fun, like freewheeling, like you're there to speak and play your game. And like just having a relationship with my coaches, I was able to talk to them as a man instead of like feeling like I didn't have a voice. Like I was just a player and they were a coach, you know, but I could speak to them as a man. Like, this is how I feel. This is where I think I could be effective. Like, you know, and just having a dialogue with them. And after a while, man, you know, after you play against so many people and you see so many names that you saw in college or on social media or whatever, you're playing them and you're like killing them. And you're like, this dude is good. This dude is close to the NBA. Nah, man. There's no way I shouldn't be here. And, you know, it finally clicked. Like, you know, I, I feel like one of one of the things that clicked was when I played the Bucks uh, or the Wisconsin Hurts team. And the Wisconsin Hurts were, like, the best team in the G League. They were killing team. They were, like, the best offense. And we played them on the back-to-back right after Christmas break. And I think, uh, you know, the whole season, a lot of my teammates were, like, dreading that game because we played them earlier in the season. It was a close game, but their style of play and their pace and their like the players they had was just wearing down on us. Like, you know, they beat us just because, you know, it's such an up and down game. And we were like, we're going to play them on a back-to-back right after the break. It's going to be a long two days. But, you know, when I got out there, you know, I was just so, like, locked in. And I don't even know why I was so locked in, but I was so ready to go and just so ready to play. The first game I had 40 and 11. And the second game, on the second night, 35 and 15. And I was just like, oh, yeah, I'm – I'm ready to play. You know, like, I just knew I was like, I'm ready to play. You knew you would there's arrive. There's nothing that can slow me down. Yeah. Like, there's nothing that can slow me down. Like, I can't. And, you know, just as a basketball player or a human, like, you can't go from, like, such a big accomplishment to then, like, nothing. You know, like, you can't take your foot off the gas at that point. Right. So, I, I feel like after that break in those games, I had known 
Well, I had known for a while, but those just kind of affirmed it that I was an NBA player, and now I should be at the next level. What do you think it was that really pushed you over the edge? Like, I think I've always been the type of guy to, like, defer and, like, be, like, a very silent good. But I would, like, turn it on when my team or, you know, teammates would say, all right, we need you. You know, like, whenever I knew, like, the team needed me or needed me to step up, like, that's when I would really, like, just relish in the moment. And I think that that game, uh, BJ, our, our leading scorer, was out. And, uh, you know, my, my coach and my teammates was like, all right, we really need Vic Law to play today. That's all you needed to say. And, it, and it's not even that. I don't even think that's what, like, like had me playing so well. But it probably, like, pushed my mental to click in to a whole other gear. And then after that, I imagine you realize, oh, okay, like, I can do this at this level and perform. So then you have those back-to-back performances to, to go back to, right? So, like you said, you can't just perform one night and then not show up again. Because then it doesn't count. It's like a fluke. But if you did back-to-back against the best team in the league, all right, what happens when you have a day off? Or two days off. What does that look like against a team that's not as good, right? And I think that, you know, you showed yourself in those two games what your ability is when you really, like, lock in. I mean, it's so funny. Like, I uh, I will listen to podcasts of Gilverinas, the No Chill Gil podcast. Yeah. And he would talk about how his confidence. Hey, we all know how Gilverinas is, like, such a killer in his prime. He was uh, saying that early in his career, you know, he was still trying to figure it out, figure himself out. Um, but when he got to the Wizards, he had Larry Hughes on the team, who at the time was an all-star, uh, was all-defensive team player. And he says the coach always put, pit him and Larry against each other. And Gilbert, you know, in Gilbert's way, says it like, you know, I'm in practice. And before I even know it, I'm I'm out there killing uh, Larry's ass. Like, it's bucket after bucket. Like, I'm killing him. And he was like, if Larry's first team all defense, then what are, what is everyone else going to do with me? And, and I feel like that's so, like, true. Like, when you really, like, sit down and think about it, if you can do it to this person and you had a mental block against them, but you can do it against that person, what what is anybody else in the league going to do? If you can shut up that one nitpicky douchebag coworker you got, then what, you know what I'm saying? Like, the, it, no, you're unstoppable. Like, if that was your one obstacle and you, like, soared over that, then what's holding you back? Yeah, I mean, your story really is the perfect example of putting the hard work in. Even like you said earlier, going to Northwestern, which isn't a school known for producing NBA prospects, you helped the school make the tournament for the first time and still didn't get the proper attention you deserve. Then you went undrafted before starting at the bottom with an Exhibit 10 contract and then earning a two-way contract where you were guaranteed time in the NBA. At every step of the way, you've had to push and push against the grain and fight for every inch. Do you ever get exhausted at this point? What are you able to tap into to continue to find the motivation to get better and put the work in? I would say, like, of talent. And Jimmy Butler kind of said this, too. But as far as talent goes, you know, I may not be the fastest dude or jump the highest or have, like, the best form or whatever, but... I do work harder than everybody that I'll play. And I, I'll, like, take that to, like, the chief. And I think work ethic, like, eliminates fear and doubt. And I know I work harder than 100% of people. So I, I put my work ethic up against anybody. When people talk to me and say, oh, like, you've made it or you're doing such a good job, like, you know, I'm still on a two-way. There's still so much room to grow. And for me to, like, really think about plateauing right now isn't even on my mind or, like, in my mental space. I have not even in, like, the part of the dream, you know, that matters yet. Like, I'm still just falling asleep. 
like I really want to have this conversation when people say you made it. When I'm firmly in the NBA on a stable contract, but like on a two way, still like breaking my foot in the door. Nah, when I kick that motherfucker down, then you can say, oh, you made it. Obviously, you're not your end goal, but how hard is it for you to, you know, sometimes find the time to celebrate those small achievements? Because achievements do matter and they do deserve attention. But how, how hard is that for you to do? And then how quickly are you on to the next goal? You know, achievements are great. Like, they're always a good pep on the back and a way to, to let you know that you're on the right path. They don't give me the, the fulfillment that I guess I necessarily need. Maybe if I win an MVP or something, that's an achievement that, that I'll always stick with. But for right now, the achievements I have are great. But, I, you know, I'm still pushing for more, man. Like, you know, whether I'm greedy or not, like, I still think I have a lot more room to grow. And uh, just as a person, a human being, man, I, I know I'm not done yet. So there's no reason to slow down now. I know you have a lot of other interests outside of the game itself, and I'm curious what your goals are there. Outside of basketball, I would like to eventually be a brand manager for a company, whether that's like the Chicago Bears or the White Sox. You know, hopefully it's, it's sports-based, but be some kind of brand manager or something, just stay around sports and kind of travel, seeing how the product's doing, seeing what the consumer likes, doesn't like. That's kind of what I where I see my vision going. You know, I don't know. A lot of people have told me I should go into management for sports. You know, something like that would be cool. I eventually want to get my doctorate. Sheesh. You're finishing up your master's right now, right? Master's, yeah. I just got it. Well, congratulations there. That's a that's an achievement worth celebrating for sure. No, it is. Well, you know, I'm going to get my MBA. Maybe, maybe I could be a president of a university. You know, you don't, I don't know. You know, the sky's the limit, and uh, there are a lot of things I'm left to do. I would actually you know, because I've always been curious. Jake, what if, if it was the perfect world, the perfect situation, what would you want your profession to be? And what would you want to do? I like, what do you want to do? Like, is Bristol a starting, a stepping stone? Or like, what do you, you know, for me, it's always been about sports. I used to think I wanted to be a broadcast journalist. I used to think that I wanted to be on ESPN as one of those hosts. And then it, you know, quickly changed to management in sports and I never knew what that meant Um, and once I went to college to study sports management I started to learn more about the business of sports and I think that for anybody who loves sports any job in sports is really like a dream there are very few people who are lucky enough to have it pinpointed and say oh I want to be you know the general manager of this team and this is the route I want to go but for me it was always just how can I get closer how can I be on the court? How can I be in the locker room? How can I be in those rooms that no one else can really get into? So that was kind of my vantage point. And I, I just took as many different jobs and different industries just to learn. So Bristol is such a beautiful thing for me because it really is the closest. It's a beautiful way to get close to the game that I love the most, which is basketball. You know, and I think there's so many amazing stories to tell around the game of basketball and and having a brand that focuses on that and focuses on you know, we put on weekly runs in our community before the pandemic happened but to to have a job to own and run a brand where I get to play basketball with friends twice a week and that's like basically a job I get to make clothes that I love and and feel communicate my love of the game um, to work with some of my closest friends who I met through the game. I think that is the dream. 
Um, and, and for me, I think it's to really build something with Bristol um, for the rest of my life that will live beyond me, that will create opportunity for other people, um, will bring individuals from different communities together to interact in ways that they don't normally interact. Um, and I think that that's just at the core of what basketball is. That's, that's what I value the most about the game, how it brings different people together. Um, so if I can create something that can live beyond me and continue to do that work, that's my dream. So that's kind of, I know it's a long answer to that question, but. So if you were ever given like, so if it's like crossroads, like they wanted you to be the athletic director, would you want to do that? No, because I think that there's a freedom that I have. Um, and, you know, Bristol has a long way to go and, and a lot of growth to happen. And, but I'm a co-owner of the brand. So I basically kind of now work for myself in a way, right? So like all the decisions that we make as a team are unfiltered decisions that we make. We don't have someone else telling us, oh, you know, my son likes this, so you should make that. You know, I think if you're in those positions, it gets really complicated because you have other people's opinions to deal with um, and their wants and their needs, which are valid to them. So if you're in that position, you know, you, you kind of have to be open to that and aware of that. And I think that what's so beautiful about what the position that I'm in with Bristol is I don't have to, we don't have to do anything that anyone else wants us to do. We get to really go in there and make decisions for ourselves and for our community that we value. And that's it. You know, that's, that's where the conversation stops. And I think it's a lot trickier in, in other positions where you have other stakeholders involved. Um, and it's hard for me to imagine being in that position when I've been in this position for the last two years and I, and I feel very free. Right. I mean, and I think that's, that's so powerful in and of itself because I think people who use platforms to do such easy things like creating a run or, and I'm sure Bristol has, has so many more opportunities and like platforms that they can still leverage that they haven't done yet. But doing, I mean, look at us right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. With this podcast, but you know, looking at stuff like that, like there's, there's a lot that this world has, has, you know, yet to be seen. There's so many people that still need guidance, still need leadership, still need a positive something. And I think sports are so valuable in the NBA, NFL, MLB know this is that sports are such a microcosm of society itself that using sports as a bridge gate or or like a bridge between issues, social justices and different like platforms like that makes it so much easier to reach a wider audience. And so I think Bristol and, you know, even yourself, like whatever you eventually find yourself doing will ultimately be, be the bridge for whoever it may be and their love of basketball and the things Bristol stands for, which are, I, I believe all the right things. And I, and I appreciate that. And I think to further that point, when we were in Paris in January of 2020 um, for fashion week, there was a day where we went to go play basketball at the hoops factory in Paris, right? Like we didn't know anyone else that was going there. We just brought our sneakers with us and had some free time and just went to that, uh, to those courts and just like played pickup with people who don't even speak English. And you see how universal the game is. 
and you can have fun and, and interact with people from different cultures. And it's like, you realize doesn't none of that matter. Like it doesn't matter. They're people. We're all people. And I think that's what you said so beautifully is sports have a great way of doing that really equalizing people and whatever bullshit you bring, you know, from out the outside world, you can, you can drop it and forget it. And in that, in those lines move freely and you have the ability to create, you know, beautiful relationships, learn different life values and just enjoy yourself and enjoy the company of others. And I think it, it, it really is such a unique, it has such a unique existence and just a unique power um, that I really, really appreciate. And I think that that is why it drives me. You know, I, I don't know exactly what Bristol looks like in 10 years, but I know that we're going to work very hard to capture those feelings and those emotions and those values with everything that we do. And I'm good with that. And I mean, I think that's powerful in and of itself. And I think as you continue to move forward, you know, more opportunities come, you'll see even more. Like, I was really impressed with, like, Jackie Nunez. And uh, I forget the other uh, – what was the other girl's name? Lexi. Lexi, who who do the, the thing for the NBA, like, around the NBA. Like, their runs and stuff. Yeah, community over everything. Right. I'm only sure, like, the Bristol runs are similar. Like, I, I felt like that was such a, a cool experience. And I met the guy that works for Stance, who lives in Orlando. And just kind of bringing those connections together uh, can be powerful in and of itself. It's an amazing thing when you don't bring in like titles or, you know, any any outside stuff where when you're just in those lines, you you meet people at face value. And like you said, you create a relationship off the court and there's synergy, but you didn't meet because of the synergy. You didn't meet because you were like, oh, you're from Orlando. I'm playing in Orlando. Oh, we should do. It's like, no, you met just playing together. And then you had a conversation after, and it turned out you had those things in common. I think that's that's what's so beautiful about it. Um, you can just form that connection with an individual that you just don't know, and it it cuts the time in half, if not you know even more, right? Like you you can meet somebody, and after playing with them for twenty minutes, feel like an instant connection and relationship. And there are very few things in this world that bring people together like that. Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. Do you have any uh, any other things that you want to bring up or address or questions, thoughts? Nah, man. I mean, we can argue <laughs> about uh, flat. I don't think we need to get back into that one. But yeah, well, thank you for taking the time to to do this with me today, and I'm um, looking forward to all the future podcasts that we record together. Right, for sure. Thanks, dude. This podcast is presented by Bristol Studio, edited by Chris Hernandez, music by James Grissom. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e 
AV on YouTube.